0: For those of you who uh, are new to this class, this is, we've been using this book called The Life of the Buddha by Bhikkhu Nyanamoli, And it's the, the his, history um, from the uh, scriptures, from the Pali Canon. So all of this information is taken out of the Pali Canon and put into uh, uh, this, this volume. And the bhikkhu who translated it was an English bhikkhu who lived in Sri Lanka. Now, the last class we're talking about after the Buddha's enlightenment, he he went to um, Saranath, yeah, near Benares and gave his first sermon to the five disciples called the Banchavaki or the the five. Uh, Friends that were with him before his enlightenment, but who had left, uh, had kind of deserted him. And then, after, and after that, he went to the foot of the Bodhi tree and sat contemplating the Dhamma till he understood or attained enlightenment. So, after his enlightenment, he went to to teach them, and and his first sermon then was the. Dhammajaka Sutta, or the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. And then after that, he... Uh, after the... Uh, uh, he taught the, the sermon, then the first... The, the Kundanya, one of the five disciples, was the only one that really understood what he was talking about. And then after the teaching of the lakana Sutta, then the rest understood. Following that was... Uh, this Yasa, who is a, a spoiled, uh, kind of rich young man who lived a life of luxury, but on hearing the, the teaching of the Buddha became enlightened. From there, uh, 30 of Yasa's friends who were picnicking, having a, uh, parties and a good time uh, in a grove of trees uh, came across the Buddha, and they, all 30 of them, uh, were enlightened through listening to the Dhamma or the teaching of the Buddha. So the now in this um, book, after now this is an interest. I want you to contemplate this following uh, section, which is on page 51 of this book. The Buddha, uh, after Yasas' conversion, and and so forth, then um, he, and after the um, conversion of the thirty friends the Mara, the evil one came again to the blessed one and, and this is an interesting uh, to me anyway, how after the, the enlightenment of the Buddha still this, uh, this what we call the Mara would still come and try to uh, put the Buddha to the test uh, cause him to doubt. So this is, Mara came to the, the, came to the Blessed One and spoke to him in these stanzas. Mara said, you are bound by every shackle whether human or divine. The bonds that tie you down are strong and you shall not escape me, monk. And then the Buddha replies, I am free from all shackles whether human or divine, freed from the strongest bonds. And you are vanquished now, uh, the Exterminator Then the then Mara said, The shackle in the air that has its hold upon the mind With that I hold you bound forevermore So you shall not escape me And the Buddha replies in verse I am without desire for sight, sounds, tastes and smells and things to touch However good they seem And you are vanquished now and so Mara the evil one understood the blessed one, he says in quotes, the blessed one knows me, the sublime one knows me and sad and disappointed he vanished at once. Now this is, this is the uh, personification of temptation isn't it? Now, the, what Mara, uh, in fact Amara, Amara or Amravati means the, the deathless. And Mara actually means what is death-bound, what is, uh, it's always the, the uh, symbol for temptation, for being attached to, to delusion and so Amara is, is undeluded, uh, deathless realization. But still, uh, in a human existence, the, these, um, these Maras still come. And uh, this is where the Buddha is always the one that knows, Mara. It's always, the Buddha says, I know you, Mara. So uh, in this, in this uh, section, Mara says, the blessed one knows me, the sublime one knows me. So this is, this is the way to say, uh, out of all delusion, out of birth and death, out of grief, sorrow, despair and anguish, is, is the way of knowing things as they are. And of course that means to know Mara, for what it is. So then the Mara came again, a little while later and, and did the same thing. And uh, of course, the uh, this was, let's see. The Buddha, uh, Gave the refuge. Say, I go for refuge to the enlightened one. I go for refuge to the dhamma. I go for refuge to the community. After, uh, after he gave permission for bhikkhus who, who were, uh, who were enlightened to go off and wander forth proclaiming this teaching. He, uh, he gave this this triple refuge. And after that, then Mara came again and said. You are bound by Mara's shackles, whether human or divine. You are bound by Mara's bonds, and you shall not escape me. And then the Buddha says, I know you, Mara. You can't fool me. And Mara went away sad and disappointed. Now that the... uh, Following that, the Buddha went to, to Uruvela, where he met the... Kasapa, who was a head of a, of a large order of fire worshippers, And this was, uh, they were probably very, kind of highly respected uh, religious sect at that time. And uh, there were three Kasapas and one had 500 followers and, and the second one had 300 and the third one had 200. All were dedicated to the worship of fire and, they'd, and, and through their ability to concentrate their minds on fire uh, to develop the samatha uh, concentration on fire, they uh, had developed uh, supernatural powers with their minds. So they were very impressed by miracles and by the ability to concentrate uh, mental energy and perform uh, extraordinary feats. So the Buddha, when he went to Uruvela, was performing these miracles, these uh, rather fantastic miracles. And one was the um, that they had a, a a firehouse with a with a kind of fire-breathing dragon living in it, and everybody was afraid to go in it. And the Buddha went in. And uh, sat there in Samadhi, the, the, the fire-breathing dragon, uh, of course, uh, came forth with all his uh, fiery uh, fierceness and, uh, and, um, and the fire worshippers saw this kind of smoke and steam coming out of the firehouse and finally the Buddha came out unharmed, unscathed, and had vanquished this, uh, this fire-breathing dragon. And upon that Uruvela Kathapa said, that's very good, you know, I'm impressed by your power, but uh, the Buddha, he didn't say this, he was thinking this actually, that, that, but you're still not an our heart like like I am. And the Buddha then performed several other miracles uh, and uh, which were very impressive and each time he would do these feats uh, and perform these miracles then Kassapa would say all very good, that's very impressive, but the Buddha is, he, he's still not an Arahant like I am. And so on, after hearing that several times, the, the Buddha said, uh, read, was reading Kasapa's mind and he went up to Kasapa and he said, Kasapa, you are neither an Arahant nor are you on the way to becoming one. There is nothing that you do by which you might become an Arahant or enter into the way of becoming one. Thereupon the matted here prostrated himself with his head at the Blessed One's feet and he said to him, Lord, I wish to receive the going forth and the admission from the Blessed One. Uh, and, so, and so that was the, the real miracle, in other words, was, was that in, to, to really allow this deluded uh, person to, to fully understand, it wasn't through performing uh, magical tricks or, or these miracles, but by actually telling the truth, and, then, and the truth was very direct. He said, "Kassapa, you are neither an arahant nor are you on the way to becoming one." And from that very direct observation of the Buddha, then Kasapa understood. So, Kasapa then became disciple of the Buddha, and all of his. Uh, aesthetics followed him and uh, and so that was the conversion of the matatera ascetics. Now when the buddha uh, after that the evil one came again, and uh, Mara came again, and he he spoke in uh, Now, I'll I'll read this. Now, when Mara the Evil One had spoken these stanzas of disappointment in the Blessed One's presence, he left that place and sat down cross-legged on the ground, not far from the Blessed One, silent, dismayed, with shoulders drooping and head down, glum and with nothing to say, scraping the ground with a stick. Then, Mara's three daughters, Dungha, Arati and Raka, which are translated as craving, boredom and lechery, went to him and spoke to him in, the, in, in stanzas. So now this, this is often depicted in murals of these three three uh, lovely ladies Mara's three daughters Dhanha, Areti and Raka and their, they, they recite these stanzas. Oh father, why are you disconsolate? They're, they're talking to, their, uh, to Mara, their father. Whom are you brooding over? We can catch him, setting a snare of lust. We'll tie him up just as they catch a forest elephant and bring him back again into your power and the uh, Mara says an arahant sublime is in the world and when a man escapes from Mara's sphere there are no wiles to lure him back again by lust and that is why I grieve so much So then Dhanha, Araji and Raka decide that they will go and see if the Buddha is really an arahant and so they test the Buddha out only to see that no matter what they do, they, they try every possible form of temptation uh, and uh, without any success whatsoever. <laughs> <coughs> now this, this is the, the way of, of uh, say, pointing to the experience of of someone who is practicing the Dhamma. Because these temptations are a constant theme. One, one of the, uh, one, one say does have insights and through, through the practicing of the Buddhist teachings and one understands things. But there's always these other, these, these voices of Mara that, that come into the mind saying, who do you think you are? Uh, you're not you. You're, you're nowhere. You you don't understand. Um, you're deluded, and and these forms of doubt. Or uh, in this last case, then it, it's the the great attack from from such things as lust, lechery, and boredom. Uh, and speaking from experience in the holy life, when you're living as a Buddhist monk. Uh, after a certain amount of insight and understanding, and, and which you can feel uh, a great deal of joy and enthusiasm, uh, gradually you find the, so, some of these forces uh, coming up in you again. Some great forces of lust, or in, into your mind, you, you, these temptations will appear in in very strong uh, uh, in very strong ways. And if you don't know Mara, if you're still caught in the in, with the uh, delusions caused by doubt and by Mara's, then of course you tend to uh, be caught into into anguish or despair or doubt, uncertainty or whatever. But in the Buddhist teachings, the teaching is to really investigate and see so clearly the just what the the way the way things really are that that whatever arises ceases, whatever is subject to arising is subject to cessation. No matter what its quality, no matter how strong uh, its quality might be or how tempting uh, or appealing it might be, the Buddha or that awakenedness in a human being, in a human being is that which can see it for exactly what it is. When you see even the most alluring and tantalizing Apparitions, as that which is subject to arising is subject to ceasing. They, there's no way that that the tantalizing qualities of it can can uh, can harm you or touch you or take root in your mind. And that's why, in, in this in this section, uh, uh, after the Buddha's enlightenment, still the, these temptations Mara was still very busy trying to. Tempt the Buddha to test his mettle to find out if he, you know, if he could really, if if uh, he could really delude and disillusion uh, Gotama the ascetic, or that was Gotama the enlightened one. But each time uh, the the Buddha would say, "I know you," and and so even in the in this uh, kind of grand finale where the three daughters of Mara do everything possible to, to distract and delude the Buddha. There was not the slightest flicker of delusion or hesitation or doubt in the Buddha's mind. Now that's, that is something to contemplate in, in, in our own practice to, to develop say, this real, this very powerful insight and reflectiveness to see just this simple truth all that is subject to rising is subject to cessation. We're not talking about any more whether it's how the quality of it, whether it's refined or coarse or or fantastic or ordinary. Boredom is another thing. Uh, many times we we Human, human experience is one where we need to, we, we, when we're deluded and we do not see the Dhamma, we, we need to distract ourselves all the time. We're restless. Uh, we're always seeking something to distract uh, our attention, something to entertain us, something that will stimulate our minds. And when we don't have stimulation or interesting things to, to go to or distractions, then we become very bored. And so boredom can, if one doesn't recognize boredom as that which is arise, that which is subject to rising, is subject to cessation, then one is, that's another form of, that's one of Mara's daughters, Arati. Arati is boredom. And one experiences a lot of that in the, in the monastic life. Oraṇī is a, is a very. Uh, there's a lot of those orāṇīs, a lot of boredom, in in monastic life because it's not it's based on say, a life. Of, of, reflection, and and a deliberate attempt to not uh, not to uh, distract oneself. Now when the Buddha left Uruvela, he went to Gaia and and he gave his, his fire sermon, which is, uh, which is the third sermon he gave after his enlightenment. The first being the Four Noble Truths, the second, the Anatta Lakana, the teaching of Anatta or no self. And this third one, is the Fire Sermon called the Aditya mariyaya Sutta and in this Encyclopedia of Buddhism uh, it gives a, a fairly good uh, outline of this sermon As he, Soon after his enlightenment, the Buddha went with a group of disciples to Uruvela and this, is, this describes the experience with the Kasapas and then from, from there went to Gaya. And near that place, on the crest of a rock called Gaya Sisa, the Buddha addressed his monks. And he addressed them thus, sapang Aditang," which means everything is burning. And the sutta as a whole is an admirable piece of ordered thinking. First the subject is stated and analyzed with all particulars. Then the nature of the fire, followed by the cause of the conflagration, is explained. Action to be taken in this respect is detailed, and finally, the results of such action are shown. This arrangement displays a pattern which is almost identical with that of the Tamajaka Sutta or the Four Noble Truths. Now, the, the, the first section of the fire sermon, the subject, uh, and, and again the Buddha says, Everything is on fire. And what, O monks, is everything that is burning? and the answer. The six senses of sight, hearing, smell, taste, touch, and thought are now taken uh, one by one. It is the eye that is burning. Material shapes are burning. Mental vision is burning. The mental impression through visual contact is burning. In fact, the feeling, whether pleasant, painful, or neutral, resulting from such contact is burning. In other words, it is the physical sense organ as subject, the physical sense phenomenon as object, the physical activity of the sense organ the mental impression thereof and the mental reaction thereto all that is burning and the same analysis is repeated for each of the senses mentioned above now that is quite a quite a marvelous piece of of analysis isn't it when you when you uh, really examine say just what vision say the eye and its ability to see and the the object and, the, and that which arises, the, the consciousness that arises in contact. Then the second part is the nature and cause. But what is it burning with, is the question. It is ablaze with the fire of lust, of, of the fire of hate and of irrationality. Uh, these are the three roots of all evil, passionate desire being directly opposed to hate, while either is always combined with and inspired by lack of understanding, by dullness, senselessness, ignorance, stupidity, and delusion. So the three roots are the causes of suffering and this, this burning it are the are last, or raka, or lopa, uh, dosa, which is hatred, and moha, de, uh, delusion. So these are the three, three roots lopa, dosa, moha in Pali. These fires, however, could not burn by themselves, but they are fed by the fuel provided by birth, decay and death, by grief and sorrow, by physical and mental conflict and by the conflict resulting therefrom. And it is life in all its phases from beginning to end which is set ablaze with the fires of lust and hate which is consumed in senseless action. It is not the body or the mind on account of which the corporeal and mental senses are said to be burning, flaming and blazing but the friction of that physical, psychical process uh, misapprehended as a permanent self with the impermanent stream of life's process causes the conflict which is unrest, grief and sorrow from birth to death thus is the nature and the cause of that which has set everything aflame now notice that, that this is not a, a condemnation of, of the senses, or of the sense objects, or of the body, or the psychophysical process at all. It is the ignorance, the, the attachment through greed, hatred and delusion that is the burning, that is the suffering. Then the third section is action to be taken. And the Buddha says, Seeing this, O monks, the well-instructed Aryan disciple gets wearied with the sense organs, their objects, their context and their mental reactions whether they are pleasant or painful or neither and in his disenchantment he detaches himself therefrom. And so in the action to be taken through this very close observation, investigation, examination of sensory experience one sees this for oneself, the, how if one is just caught up into it, one is forever burning, caught into this realm of, of burning, in pain, suffering. And when you really see that, then you have this, feel this weariness uh, and, this, and a disenchantment with the illusions of the sensory world takes place. And in Buddhism, this is considered a, a, a very uh, important spiritual development is this disenchantment, which isn't a, a uh, an, which sounds negative in English in uh, in our way of thinking, but in in Buddhist terms, it's uh, it's an advancement in human understanding to become disenchanted with the world of ignorance and suffering and this this this. Uh, what in this particular sutta is called the experience of burning. And the fourth section then is the results of this disenchantment. Through dispassion he is set free with the knowledge of deliverance. Uh, He's set free with with the knowledge of deliverance and with the realization that rebirth is destroyed. The righteous life is lived. What had to be done is done for life In these conditions there is nothing more. And then there's a note here which is uh, noteworthy in these concluding lines is the absence of all reference to any person even in an impersonal way. It is not the disciple who destroys rebirth by living a righteous life. It is not a perfected one who has completed his task. But, quote, done is what was to be done. The conflict has resolved itself. The conflagration is burnt out, and the fire extinguished. Now uh, it's important to contemplate what fire is, because it's uh, it's something that we that is um, we're very much involved with. Uh, living as human beings, uh, living in, in planetary life where the Sun is one enormous ball of fire and energy. Our planet and our bodies, everything is, has this heat quality in it. We need, we, we depend a lot on fire in order to see and electricity and and so forth, to keep warm and to see, to survive. So it's not fire that that's the problem. It's delusion. And so when there's when there's delusion and ignorance, then we burn ourselves with fire. Because we're living in, in this realm of 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 light and and heat and fire. Isn't it? We're, we're very much involved like our bodies. If, when the fire element goes out in them. That's what death is, isn't it? The, when, when the human body dies, the, uh, the fire element leaves it. No longer, uh, the metabolism uh, stops and the decaying process starts taking place. But as long as there's fire in the body and we're fueling it, we have to eat and we have to, we have to keep refueling these bodies with things in order so, so, so that this fire can burn or, or operate according to natural laws, the way things are. Now the human condition of ignorance, uh, we, we do not see this for what it is, so that we become uh, caught in, in burning ourselves with the fire of the sense realm. For example, if you do not see and know the truth of the way it is, then all our reactions to to sensory experience are the the reactions of pain and suffering and burning. We're burning ourselves out. We're destroying ourselves. We're harming ourselves. We're harming others. You can see in in a modern society, modern materialism has taken uh, this this, uh, Curiosity with the sensory world and material elements of it, to the point where it is created, say like nuclear weapons, nuclear bombs, where we're now quite capable of destroying not only oneself but everyone along with, with us, and that we can pollute and destroy and burn up the whole planet if we so choose to it, without deluded and at this time people are rather feel very threatened by that possibility all all over the world now there's this cry out for peace longing for peace uh, for uh, to to, uh, say reduce this threat, this danger of destruction by fire but even if nuclear bombs don't destroy us, we still destroy ourselves through ignorance we are constantly burning, hurting, singeing, corrupting that around us, ourselves and those around us with, with these different uh, qualities of greed, hatred and delusion. Now for example, take the candle of the shrine. Now that's fire isn't it? When you, when you light uh, the candle you take two rather uh, unfiery looking objects like a, a stick and a box and, and through friction a flame is produced and that flame you can put onto a candlestick and that flame is contained within that limitation so one can appreciate say a candle flame it gives a, a, a lovely light a soft and gentle light in a shrine, isn't it, at night when you have when you just uh... light the shrine with candles it's a, it's a beautiful light, not a burning, harsh, blazing explosive blaze, is it? and yet it could be, if, if one were deluded one could uh, set the shrine on fire of the building one is not mindful one is, is, is caught up say, with uh, with being very heedless and not really contemplating the situation taking into account the things around one could burn down the shrine, burn down the Buddhist society or burn it out or we can light the flame, light the candle uh, through mindfulness knowing that we can appreciate the light that it gives and the effect that it has. We appreciate when when the Buddha was enlightened we talk about enlightenment and this enlightenment is the ability to see but see things as they are. It's, It's not a light, a blazing light that blinds you. The Buddha wasn't blinded by enlightenment. Where, where light can blind us, can we? If light is too strong, our eyes are not capable, our minds are not capable of handling the, the light from the sun. Isn't it? We have to put on, we have to, uh, we, we like the, the reflected light of the sun, but not the direct light of it. If we look into the blazing sun in mid-afternoon we have to close our eyes, we can't stand it, can we? We have to put on either our our filters, sunglasses of some sort, or we can appreciate the light of the sun as as it lights that around us. So we looked on the reflected light of the sun rather than the direct blazing light of the sun. Moonlight itself is the reflected light of the sun, isn't it? So moonlight is extremely beautiful. And when we talk about romance, poetry, so much poetry and beautiful symbols come from contemplating the, the, the light of the moon, moonlight and one can look directly at the moon say on a full moon night which was last, well last week 31st of May at Amravati had this beautiful moon that one could just stand and look directly at the moon, the light of the moon, which one couldn't do at the sun. The sun is too strong, but the reflected light. And say so in our own human state then, our human condition, that as we, the, the light or the enlightenment that comes through reflection and contemplation, through awakeness, from human awakeness and wisdom, isn't blazing or blinding light but it's the, the, the amount of light necessary to see clearly. So we, we generate this light from our minds. We, we're, we're in touch with that which is light and clear and bright and awake rather than being caught in burning and destruct, destroying, in conflagrations, in holocaust. In infernos that we create when we when we don't reflect and don't understand, then we then we create destructive, burning fires in our minds. So, like Raka uh, and dosa and moha, or greed, hatred, and delusion, those three fires are dis- are the fires of destruction. And that is something we, we create in our mind. That's not the way things are, that's not the Dhamma, of, that's not the truth, that, that, that everything is on fire as a kind of metaphysical symbol of the whole universe is, is an evil place that is burning up, where sometimes uh, many people read that into Buddhist teachings as a kind of total rejection of the universe and the sensory world and as something that is, uh, in itself, evil. But what the Buddha was pointing to wasn't, wasn't to evil as, as something that is, uh, uh, as the body or the or the sensory world or the universal system but it is the delusion the ignorance and therefore the, the greed and the hatred that comes from that ignorance and that is something that human beings, we each of us, produce that kind of burning fire onto the things around us that is, that is the suffering or the dukkha that the Buddha was, was uh, uh, talking about, in his first sermon, the, 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 the First Noble Truth of Suffering. Now it's very important to, to see that, the, that, that it's the attachment through ignorance to the, to the body, to the sensory world that is the, that is the problem, is the suffering actually things are as they are. Sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, our ability to feel and think are not, one can't say, one doesn't make absolute judgments about any of that. They are as they are. One can see beauty or ugliness, one can hear uh, beautiful music or horrible sounds or pleasant odors or unpleasant ones or taste uh, delicious flavors or unpleasant ones and so forth. The, the sensory realm is like that. It, it's dualistic. It has, uh, it, if it has one quality, it'll have the other. If you have birth, you have death. If you have uh, happiness, then there's suffering. And that's the way uh, the world is. The sensory world is, is like that. But that's not the that there's, there's nothing wrong, in, in kind of absolute terms. There's nothing absolutely right or wrong about any of it. And in Buddhist terms we say, it is as it is. Beauty is beauty, ugliness is ugliness, but it's not absolute or permanent. There's no such thing as permanent ugliness, or permanent evil, or permanent goodness. Because in, in just, the, just that conceptual quality, of uh, uh, absolute ability to absolutize, right and wrong, good and bad, has led so many people, religious and righteous people, into, into doing so many evil and unkind actions, hasn't it? When you, when you absolutize right and wrong, then you become bigoted, hypocritical, tyrannical, why, why, why has so much uh, violence and uh, cruelty been done in the name of God or righteousness? Because of that tendency to absolutize right and wrong, it's, it's permanent. Right is what I think and it's permanently, absolutely right. And wrong is what you're doing and it's absolutely, permanently wrong. So, if, 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 if I operate from that position, then what happens? I, I, I have to uh, set you right, don't I? <laughs> I have to convert you, or make you agree, or, and if you don't, then I have maybe it, the best thing is to just destroy you, get rid of, because if you're absolutely wrong and absolutely evil, then, then the, the logic that follows from that is destruction, killing, get rid of you. And that's very much like from our, from the background, say, of uh, uh, Judeo-Christian thinking at least from my background and speaking from my experience uh, the mind tends to, was very much conditioned in that way where good and bad were absolutized, right and wrong were absolutes and this is what attracted me very much to Buddha Dhamma Buddhist teaching was that that didn't, that didn't operate, there was no there's no absolutes in Buddhism, uh, there's no metaphysical doctrine so that there's, there's nothing to, there's, there's nothing to grasp as an ultimate position in any way, in, through any concept at all. And this frustrates theistic religions because uh, because they don't, they don't understand the, the psychology behind Buddhist teaching They more or less look at it from their own perspectives of where, where metaphysical doctrines are given a kind of absolute qualities notice that in this sermon, the Buddha is using, is taking something that, that was worshipped as a, like a, a fire worship. I don't know exactly what their practices were. We don't, they don't go into detail about how they performed their rituals uh, and what they did or what they believed in. But just trying to think of, if I were worshipping fire, what would I do? One thing, fire is is a very, uh, in itself is quite beautiful isn't it? It's, when you see fire you're attracted to it I mean you, your eyes uh, tend to, what is on fire one tends to be drawn toward it, drawn to it um, a candle for example or or in a fireplace, a fire that's contained in, and uh, its attractiveness is say on a cold winter's night what is more attractive than a than a, a fire in a fireplace, if you come in from the outside in the cold and, and and if there's a fire burning in the fireplace that's the first thing you notice isn't it usually unless something more extreme is happening. Fire is, uh, can be an obsession with people, they're kind of like pyromaniacs, that go around setting Buildings on fire, just to watch them because they are exciting, isn't it? Fire is it can excite the mind. It's an exciting thing to see something burning down. People can feel excitement from that. When we talk about passion, we talk about a fiery personality, isn't it? Someone that has a a fiery personality usually has a very lustful or very angry. They're very passionate. They're very extreme. They're, they can be very exciting people say someone that doesn't have much fire is, is generally regarded as a bit dull, boring kind of a blob of mediocrity and no, no passion so fire uh, say as, as an object of worship the sun uh, and, and the, the warmth and the fire and yet there were, the, 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 say, the tendency to worship fire, then, tends to perceive fire as something rather than to reflect on fire. Now obviously, Kathapa, at uh, was when he was, uh, when he was uh, before he was, he realized Dhamma through the Buddha, he was very much into uh, say, practices where fire would, would give him tremendous power, because if you uh, through various forms of meditation, as you concentrate, put all your attention on one thing, especially something like fire, if you, if you use fire as an object of concentration, then, then you're, you're putting forth all the energy and effort uh, that you can arouse in your mind toward the fire and that that gives tremendous power to perform uh, rather fantastic feats. But that can be another kind of distraction and and delusion and this the Buddha was pointing out that that all these kind of uh, tricks and and fantastic feats that fire worshippers could perform were really you know they were maybe entertainments and they were uh, interesting or impressive, they were very impressive obviously. But it was not enlightenment. And when he said to Kasapa, you are not in our heart, you are not doing anything to that one could say is enlightened. You're not even near to it. So that, that is a, that one would think, well that would be a, a very insulting thing to hear if you were a famous uh, Teacher, a highly respected uh, guru on fire worship, and somebody came along and told you that, well, then uh, you think it would be quite an insult. But Kathapa obviously was very near to enlightenment. He, wa- he wasn't, he wasn't uh, just a deluded, egocentric guru, but he was very obviously very close, and the Buddha recognized that because just through saying that, Kasapa realized that enlightenment wasn't being able to perform fiery tricks with your mind but seeing things as they are even to see one's delusions the delusions in one's mind for what they are as that which is subject to arising is subject to ceasing Now this, this uh, disenchantment in, in when we chant this uh, fire sermon we've been doing it at Amaravati in the evenings I'm getting ready for this evening's talk we've been chanting the past two nights nice, the fire sermon and it's very nice chant actually very pleasant one to chant uh, and it's very repetitious because you you're going through each of the senses, you're through the eye and the ear and and, and, and as the, as the uh, insight, knowledge, came to the fire worshippers uh, how, you know, the, the, that this, this sense of burning through, through greed, hatred and delusion, as they saw that, then they, their insight into this disenchantment no longer no longer wanting to do all those things, wanting to perform all those tricks, wanting to get caught up in all their their uh, discipline and concentration practices, because they began to see all they were really doing through what through their fire worshiping was burning themselves. They weren't they weren't being enlightened through fire, but they were being burned by fire, and through their through the Buddhist teaching, then they became aware, they were enlightened, in other words, they saw that, that light and the fire is, a pre- is forever present in us. And if we just open, awaken, rather than try to create power through fire, uh, if we just awaken to it, then there, that's the light, that's the enlightenment, the, the light to see things as they are. And how everything is, then, is is just the simple truth that whatever is subject to arising is subject to ceasing. that that, that is the that is the teaching of the Buddha. Then in our practice of that, of, of that through, through reflecting on that, we we become we become aware that of all whatever it is, whatever it is, whether it's uh, violent forms of greed or hatred or delusion or just uh, relatively minor insignificant feelings or, or from most refined types of conditions to the most uh, coarse, from, the, from right and wrong, good and bad, all that, is, all that we can qualify and describe and give attributes to uh, whether positive or neutral or negative when seen from this position of enlightenment from seeing it as it is all one can say about it is whatever subject to arising is subject to cessation and then applying that to to life itself as you're living your life more and more you you're, you're realizing that truth where where the cessation of things the cessation of conditions is realized. You're no longer just caught up in reacting to the stimulation of sensory impingement and going from one thing to another, but your, your your mindfulness and wisdom allows you to realize the ending of that, the cessation of what has arisen. And through that insight into cessation, to the cessation of what has arisen, is peace is the true kind of peacefulness, calm, serenity, knowledge, clarity of the Buddha mind, the mind of Buddha. What time is it? Now this, this next week, just contemplate this more and more when you're at, when you're home or at work or wherever, just really look at fire and contemplate it, begin to uh, reflect on fire, what it is, when the sun, when the sunlight, do we like to look, do you like to look directly at the blazing sun or do you like the sunlight, the way it reflects or the garden, or the, the, the trees. And you become, you just to notice what, what actually is the way things are for you as a human being. Or the moonlight, or the, the sunlight, or the reflected light, or the ability of the human mind to be light. We can, we can be in the light, even, even, when, I, even when it's dark. And our eyes can no longer operate in the dark. You can't see in the dark. Just the awakeness and clarity of the mind is light itself, isn't it? We're not, we're not depending on just the sight as light, but being able to see when, there's, uh, when the light's on. But even when the light, try this out in a dark room, when you turn the lights out in your room and you know, the room is dark, what is, is there still light? And, but not through sight, but the ability of the mind to be clear and awake, undeluded, e- in the dark or in, in, in broad daylight. So you're beginning to, say, contemplate the, the, what light really is, rather than just perceiving it only as, as sunlight or moonlight or electric light or candlelight. Because enlightenment then isn't, isn't, it doesn't mean, I mean, one can be physically blind and still be enlightened. Enlightenment doesn't depend on having 20-20 vision or good bifocals, or electricity, or sunny weather, or moonlight, I think. but it, it's the, the light of your mind that's clear. And undiluted, and that's enlightenment. That's not. That's not. Delusion. That's not greed, hatred, or delusion. Now, I'd say the deluded person then is always reacting. If it, when it's dark or 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 light or whatever, whatever is happening, there's a reaction to it, a conditioned reaction, so that you. you in the, in the light, we, we become interested in things, we look at the objects, the flowers, the, the things that are attractive to vision. If we see something unpleasant or ugly, we, we tend to turn away, not look at it. In the dark, then if we, if we're, if, if there's no light, we can be frightened because we don't know what's there, you don't, if you can't see what's in the dark room. So you can imagine, you can imagine all kinds of things. Could be in the dark room, then uh, what you imagine might be rather frightening. Or because there's nothing to distract your vision in the dark room, you might just fall asleep, isn't it? We're conditioned to maybe, as soon as the light goes out in the room, off to sleep we go. And that's a very conditioned reaction in, in human beings, it, when, when, there's no, when there's nothing to look at and it's dark then just fall asleep. But the the reflective investigative mind uh, of the Buddha is one that can reflect on even the darkness when there's no light to the eye because the mind is still light and there's that awakeness, that knowing, that wisdom and clarity that is present whether it's day or night or whether you're blind or not So your, your homework for the next week is to contemplate fire and light And these, these book, this book, if I think there's still copies you can buy here at the Buddhist Society or if not at Chiswick, at the London Buddhist Vihara they have, they have it was there. So at this time we can have a short break and those who have to catch trains (laughs) may do so, may leave.